Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 9, The Balkan Provinces. During the last two episodes, we saw what had become of the former Roman provinces after the fall of the Western Empire. This week, we're going to continue moving slowly east and take a look at the remaining Byzantine provinces which lie to the west of Constantinople and also take a glance at the northern neighbours of the empire. I suppose the episode really should be called The Balkan Provinces and Their Neighbours, but that's kind of a mouthful. Last time, we saw the state of the Italian prefecture, now under the control of Theodoric's Ostrogoths, a territory which covered not just Italy, but also land to the north and east, moving into the Balkans along the Dalmatian coast. To help you picture this better, we will be using two maps today. The first is just last episode's map again, which covers the whole of Europe, and the map on this week's post, which focuses on the Balkan provinces specifically. Let's start with the barbarian tribes living to the north of Italy and the Danube. If you consult your map from the previous post, I'll give you a second to focus in on Europe, you'll see that north of the Ostrogothic Kingdom of Italy are a number of peoples, in particular the Heralds, the Rugi, the Lombards, and the Gepids. These were all German tribes who had been brought under Attila's yoke at the height of Hunnic power. And of course, these were the tribes who fought in the revolt which destroyed that power in 454, with the German tribes reasserting their independence. You may recall from episode 3 that Theodoric's Ostrogoths moved into former Roman territory at this time. The Heralds, Rugi, Lombards and Gepids did not. They were settled across the lands which today would comprise the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary and Romania. With the Huns gone, the same pattern of behaviour took hold that you will be thoroughly used to after listening to the history of Rome. The tribes looked to the Byzantines for trade, for service in their armies, and for plunder. Last episode we saw how the Gepids occupied the former Roman regional capital of Sirmium, and how Anastasius seemed happy with that, 
as a check against Ostrogothic power. The bottom line here is that within the Byzantine Balkan provinces, you might well find an armed Gepid or Herul wandering around, and there was as good a chance that he was being paid as a Federate soldier as there was that he was a member of a raiding party. Travelling even further east along your map, we come to two names that will require a longer explanation, the Sclavini and the Huns. The Sclavini was a term the Byzantines used fairly indiscriminately to describe a new people who had arrived along the Danube during the last couple of decades. We will come to know them as the Slavs. The origin of the Slavs is still debated, and I'm not going to pretend to add anything to that discussion. What we do know is that they were living north of the belt of German tribes familiar to the Byzantines during the 5th century. Their appearance, now in the 6th century, suggests that they began to migrate south as many of the German tribes packed up and entered the Roman Empire. I should make clear that this is not a simple process. When those tribes of Goths began asking for asylum in the 370s, they didn't leave farms and homes standing empty for the Slavs to just walk in and occupy. The process would have been more gradual than that. However, the movement of large groups of Germans into the empire would have left military vacuums in some areas, which Slavic groups probably exploited. The Byzantine understanding of the Slavs was very limited at this stage. The information they had identified the Slavs as living in forests, rivers, lakes and marshes, rather than cities and towns. They were pagans who worshipped nature deities and seemed to have little in the way of leadership whom the Byzantines could negotiate with. Another group of Slavs were identified around this time, the Anti. You can see Antes on the map just north of the Carpathian Mountains, where there is a second reference to Sclavines. I will leave the Slavs there for now, but as I'm sure you're aware, we will be dealing with them again soon enough. To the east of the Slavs on your map are the Huns. Now I know what some of you might be thinking. Hey Robin, didn't you tell us back in episode 3 that the Bulgars were the people occupying the north bank of the Danube? Why, yes I did. Here we come up against an interesting phenomenon. I've read half a dozen books on this period who all disagree about whether to call the people who now live on the Black Sea coast Huns or Bulgars. You might recall that last episode I talked about a Hunnic warlord named Mundo who was loose in the Balkans and who fought the Byzantines with their Bulgar allies. What is going on here? The problem seems to be that Roman and Byzantine authors were not good at accurately defining the barbarian peoples they wrote about. If you didn't have a king that the Romans knew or a clearly defined political system, the chances are you would be lumped in with another tribe when being described in the history books. We know that after Attila's empire broke up, there were still many Huns living in the area north of the Danube. We also know that people identified as Bulgars arrived in the same region during this time. As we know so little about the ethnic makeup and origins of both peoples, it's easy to see why contemporary historians would equate the two. They were both foreign-looking people from the steppes who fought as horse archers. 
Beyond that, though, the accuracy of statements about who different groups of raiders or Federate troops were is not likely to be high. The majority of authors, though, seem to prefer Bulgars as the term to describe the political units which dominated this region. Again, if you turn to your map and look even further east to the Crimea and the coast north of the Black Sea, you will see people called Kutrigers, Utigers, and Onugers. These tribes will feature in our story, and they came to be more firmly identified as Bulgars as time goes on. Perhaps they were descended directly from Attila's Huns? Perhaps they weren't. As this is the history of Byzantium, and not Bulgaria, I hope the distinction doesn't matter too much, with all due apologies to any angry horse archers listening. So despite what it says on your map, I'm saying that the people who lived around the Black Sea coast were Bulgars, with Huns living amongst them and slowly becoming absorbed into them. I hope that's clear now, and not just a confusing mess. After hearing about this large collection of disparate peoples, I think you can see why the Danube frontier was no longer a secure one for the Byzantines. To some extent, it hasn't really been secure since the Goths crossed over in 376, but despite the endless invasions, the Balkans remained in Byzantine hands. To get a closer look at the Byzantine Balkans, you can now turn to this week's map. On the new post at the History of Byzantium, wordpress.com you can see a detailed map of the region a big thank you to Constantinos Placidus for the map we will be using several more of his excellent maps as we go forward I found them through Wikipedia where his username is C. Placidus the area left to Byzantine control during the reign of Anastasius equates to modern Greece Albania Montenegro, Kosovo, Macedonia, Bulgaria, and parts of Bosnia, Serbia, and Romania. This was the same territory that the Romans had controlled since Augustus, with the exception of Dalmatia, which was now under Ostrogothic control. As you probably know, the Dalmatian mountains are hard to travel through and lead directly to the Alps and the crossing into Italy so it made strategic sense for Theodoric to control them, even if it made the Byzantines a little twitchy. Since Diocletian and Constantine had redrawn the administrative map of the empire, the largest administrative unit had become the prefecture, which was made up of several dioceses, which were in turn made up of several provinces. The new map divides this all up and neatly labels it for you. So the Western Balkans formed the prefecture of Illyricum, made up of the dioceses of Dacia and Macedonia. To the east was the prefecture of Thrace, which was comprised of just Thrace and Constantinople. Each prefecture had its own field army, both of which have featured in our story so far, fighting Bulgar raids and Ostrogothic armies. I know it was a few episodes ago now, but when Vitalian was in revolt against Anastasius, he managed to take control of Lower Moesia, or Moesia II on your map, and Scythia, before marching on Constantinople. You can now see those territories 
bordering the Black Sea coast, near to where Vitalian won his large victory at Acris, though that town is not on the map. Hopefully this helps make it clear why Vitalian's revolt was a serious threat to the emperor. Let's begin our exploration on the west side. The Romans had begun to colonize Illyria way back in the 200s BC, and with the traffic to and from Italy still strong, the links with the home province remained. If you ignore the actual Greeks living in Greece, the citizens of Illyricum were largely Latin speakers, and staunchly orthodox in their Christian faith. Technically, they were under the authority of the Archbishop of Thessalonica, but many still looked to the Pope for guidance and leadership. This is why Vitalian was able to rouse a considerable rabble to support his bid to oust Anastasius after he tampered with the Trisagion. As the map makes clear, Illyricum was a mountainous region. Throughout Greece and practically up to the Danube itself, there are no wide open plains. This meant that Illyricum bred tough, hardy people, but struggled to produce enough food to feed them all. The mountain valleys of the central Balkans did produce good cereal crops, and sheep and goat herding were common, but the area had always been a good recruiting ground for the legions, because its young men couldn't be guaranteed a comfortable life on this narrow agricultural base. As you know, Illyricum had produced some of Rome's best emperors, Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian, Diocletian, Constantine, and it wasn't done yet. As well as the legions, Byzantine mining operations were active in the area, looking for gold, copper and various ores that could be found in the mountains. Owing to the porous Danube frontier, Illyricum had suffered constant raiding for over a century now. Waves of Goths, Huns, and then more Goths had been pillaging and marching around until Theodoric finally packed up and headed to Italy. Even then, the area was occasionally given a thorough raid by the Bulgars. In terms of towns and cities, there are only a few worth mentioning. In the very northwest, you can see Sirmium. For a long time, it was a key imperial border city, but was now technically under the control of Theodoric's Goths. Then, further south on the coast, you can see Durachium, Anastasius' birthplace, and the main port for journeys over to Italy. And if you follow the road east, you come to Thessalonica, the only city in the Balkans with a population of over 15,000 at this point. The more famous Greek cities had dwindled in size to the point where they don't make it into the histories too often anymore. Thessalonica's star, on the other hand, was still rising. Situated on the Via Ignatia, the main road between Dyrrhachium and Constantinople, the city had been expanding ever since Constantine founded his new Rome. Thessalonica had become Galerius's regional capital before that, during the period of the Tetrarchy, and had maintained its status into the Byzantine era. It was ideally positioned to control the Balkans, being at the crossroads of Greece and the north, and the capital and Italy. It was on the sea, it had its own hippodrome of course, and by this time boasted massive defensive walls to protect it from the raids from the north. Life in Thessalonica 
is only going to get more interesting from here on out. To the east was the prefecture of Thrace, which as you can see was less mountainous and therefore a more prosperous place. Although it shared in the deprivations of Illyricum over the years, its proximity to Constantinople and the precental armies meant that raiders would not linger for too long. The Thracian plain, the stretch of land running from the capital out towards the mountains, contained good farming land, where the staple cereal crops of the Byzantine world, wheat, barley or millet, could be easily grown. Constantinople was obviously the major city in the area, but you can see the fateful town of Adrianople in the middle of the plain. In the mountains of the area, Latin remained widely spoken, but along the plain, Greek now predominated. The gravity of Constantinople made it hard not to be fluent, and the remnants of the pre-Roman Thracian language disappear during the 6th century. We'll return to the Balkan provinces when I come to talk about the military disposition of the Byzantines in a future podcast. For now, though, I think you can see the perilous situation the area was in. The Balkans were confronted in the north by an ever-changing group of hostile people looking enviously at the material wealth the empire still possessed, and to the west were the Goths, whose loyalty to the empire was questionable. I think the Balkans suffered from a kind of strategic complacency. Despite the list of potential threats I've mentioned, the Byzantines were always more afraid of the Persians than anyone to the west, with the notable exception of Attila, of course. But from the Byzantine perspective, the Persians would always be the greater threat, because they had the capacity to raise disciplined, well-equipped armies who could take territory from the empire and hold on to it. The barbarian tribes might be fierce, but they tended to raid rather than conquer. They didn't have the political or economic resources to actually take hold of provinces, and so they were perceived as a lesser threat. Under those circumstances, an invasion into the Balkans was not viewed as a life-threatening incident for the empire especially now that the Theodosian walls essentially protected the whole of the east from invasion from the west. So raids into the Balkan had become almost an accepted part of life by the time of Anastasius. It wasn't ideal, but it was tolerated. As I say, we'll return to this question in a few episodes' time, but hopefully I've painted a picture of the region. It was divided by geography, language and culture, and constantly under threat from invasions. It was not, nor had it been for some time, a peaceful place to live. Before I leave the Balkans, I think we need to discuss an area adjacent to it. With the eastward shift in the focus of our story, the Black Sea is going to play a far more important role in the history of Byzantium, than it ever did in the history of Rome. In fact, an area of Roman interest that I don't recall coming up in the podcasts before is the Crimea. If you don't know where that is, then return to your map of Europe and look at the jagged bit of land poking into the middle of the Black Sea from the north. It's where the number 22 is, which, if you consult the key, is actually more Goths 
those who were still in the region when the Huns took over and have now recovered their independence. Just below the 22, you'll see that the line of the empire's borders actually takes in a chunk of the Crimean coast. So, what's the story here then? Since when did the empire acquire a province in the Crimea? Well, they didn't. Technically. The southern coast of the modern Crimea had long, long ago been colonised by the Greeks. We're talking the 5th century BC. The area had been part of the Kingdom of Pontus during the time of Mithridates, the Greek king who tangled with Sulla and then Pompey. And when Pompey emerged victorious, the Bosporian kingdom that emerged in that region became a Roman vassal. The kingdom managed to survive with that status during the time of the empire and Augustus's settlements, and it was Vespasian who was the first emperor to send troops to occupy a military camp there called Charax. Ostensibly, it was to protect the Greek coastal towns from marauding Scythians, but it, of course, also protected Roman financial interests. The camp was abandoned during the crisis of the 3rd century, amidst the arrival of the Goths in the area. The Goths were then replaced by the Huns, and with the breakup of Attila's empire, the coastal towns resumed their independence and then received Byzantine garrisons again. As the natural port for trade in the area, it was strategically important, and also allowed the Byzantines to keep an eye on the northern tribes. The woodlands of the Black Sea coast also provided good timber for shipbuilding. As I'm becoming fond of saying, this is not its last appearance in our story. I suppose, really, I should have called this episode The Balkan Provinces and Their Neighbours, and the Black Sea Coast, and the Byzantine military interest in the Crimea. But now we're just getting silly. Another shorter episode, I hear you cry. Yes, but don't fear, because the next one is going to be a bumper edition, as we head down the Thracian plain into the new Rome, Constantinople. We will be taking a full walking tour of every nook and cranny of the great city to see what life was like in the imperial capital. Then we will resume our tour in Anatolia and continue moving east to go check out Syria, Palestine, Egypt and see what the Persians have been up to. Thanks again to all of you for listening and for your helpful comments on Facebook, in iTunes and at the History of Byzantium. WordPress.com.